Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by GoRuck Media. I'm Jason here with Emily in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. And our guest today on episode 12 is Ambassador Elizabeth Millard. A career diplomat in the Foreign Service who served in Prague, Copenhagen, India, Nepal, Morocco, and Kazakhstan, as well as two stints at the White House. And from 2016 to 2017, she served as the U.S. ambassador to Tajikistan in Central Asia, bordering both Afghanistan and China, just in case your geography is a little rusty. Her parents were both medical doctors. Her late husband, Captain Millard, was a naval intelligence officer with 30 years of service. So she and her family exemplify servant leadership that is at the core of what this podcast is all about. And it's an honor to have her on the show. Ambassador Millard, thank you for coming on Glorious Professionals. Thank you all. I'd love to hear about your youth, how you developed this spirit for travel and cultures and adventures. Well, as you mentioned in your intro, Jason, my parents were both medical doctors and my dad uh, worked for the World Health Organization. And that, of course, is a UN agency. And it meant that uh, he was posted to various places. And we, uh, I was one of four. And we, wherever we went, uh, we were always interested in exploring and learning about the country where we were, just making friends. And, and so um, that, that sort of instilled in me, I think, that uh, desire and that openness to foreign cultures. So adventure is kind of the family business. Yeah, you <laughs> could say that. And, you know, it wasn't like I was thinking at that time, oh, I'm going to spend my, the rest of my life living like this. It wasn't that I, that was my firm intention. That's what I have to do. But I am now looking back. I'm very grateful that that is indeed how it worked out. So what was what was a memorable time in your youth where you said, oh, man, I can't believe this is going on or it was just a culture shock or or was it just the case where everything was always different? Yeah, I think it, it really was always. Um, I mean, I spent a number of years in Denmark. And um, so in, in some ways, um, you know, that was, if I think, of a place that's very normal. You know, it was my time in Denmark. And then I was actually very fortunate to have a posting in Copenhagen later. Uh, and that was, as you can imagine, quite magical to, to go back and uh, where I had spent so many years when I was little. One of the formative uh, events in my childhood was, uh, or in my youth, was when we moved to North Africa and I was sort of in junior high and going into high school. And uh, as it turned out, there was no English speaking school that was suitable for me. So my parents just went ahead and enrolled me in the French lycée there. Uh, and as it happened, I did not speak a word of French and I just had to then um, sink or swim. And in, in a way it was transformative because I just through that immersion learned uh, French. And to this day, you know, that's been uh, a language that I have. And then that's helped me uh, learn other languages. Uh, as you, we all know, it's easier once you've learned one foreign language to, to uh, add to those. And of course, everywhere we were, you know, we were interested, as I said, in, in experiencing what the local, what, whatever that place had to offer uh, and uh, whether it was the culture, the history, et cetera. So I think it was just something I grew up with. And uh, I was just thrilled to be able to continue it through uh, my husband's career and then eventually with my own. Wow, that's really cool. So the French Lycée, what year were you when you matriculated? You're a Francophone yourself. And yes. so, and as you know, the French school system is 13 years and uh, not 12. So I did lose some time, but 
actually, you know, I, I had to start in the middle of the school year. So we moved uh, over the holidays and I started in January. And I remember this class was like 40 kids and I sat in the way back and like not understanding a word. Wow. I um, So it was pretty challenging. Anyway, so I was 19 when I graduated from high school with that French uh, baccalaureate. And then, of course, the funny thing in the Foreign Service, which I know we'll get to later, is that I actually didn't uh, go to a Francophone post until very late in my career when I went to Morocco. But nevertheless, I used the French at every post with our counterparts from whatever Francophone country might have been represented there. So it was always useful. Well, I, I 100% agree. My mother is a French teacher, retired now. And, you know, when I joined, you know, the CIA, I was thinking, oh, gosh, I don't have one of these more interesting languages. And, and yet at the same time, like my French became so it became so it was so handy, you know, in Africa and in Europe. You know, it is an international language. You know, it's it's definitely used in all of these sort of diplomatic um, sort of forums. So I can imagine that that really was useful yeah, thankfully for you both, they were really into colonizing a lot of people all over the world. And, <laughs> you know, they they left their French behind and then the, the good folks there adopted it and learned it and, it and it did make it useful. I mean, in all over West Africa and all over Africa. And then, you know, you go to even Vietnam, there's still vestiges of, of the French there when you're there. So it's it's one of those things where I never understood growing up why someone would want to learn French just to go to France. It's like, completely different than say German, right? I mean, mm -hmm. German is Germany and, and Switzerland and, and Austria. But when you say French, it's just, it's all over the place. That's really true. So was there some draw for you toward a career in service? Was that just a way of life that you grew up with? I think that that's definitely true. I think that uh, th the sense I had from my parents that uh, there was real worth in the greater good, in uh, giving and trying to better the world, really. I think there was a little bit of, of uh, that idealism that I grew up with that was def definitely there throughout. Um, and the flip side of that, I would say, is that while obviously we knew, you know, people in business and whatnot, and I later actually briefly worked as a banker, you know, I was far, that was far less of an exposure to me. I was more exposed to people who were, whether they were in the military or uh, in diplomacy or, or, you know, in one of these UN agencies or whatever, that, that that was what they were about. And I think instilled in me from an early age. So let's talk about your husband, the late Captain Millard, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how, how y'all met and what that was like in following him around, as you would say, for the, the first 15 years? Yeah. So uh, I met him in the Philippines. He was posted there at the embassy. And I was my dad was in Manila at that time. And I went out to visit my parents. And, um, you know, I think it was just pretty much right away. We knew we wanted to get married. He was a bit older than I was. And he was posted then to London following his Manila assignment. And I uh, went to England as well. And uh, started attending the London School of Economics, and we uh, lived there for a couple of years. The Navy was new to me, I, I will tell you that. And I remember meeting some of his colleagues, and many of whom lived sort of in the little Americas, surround, you know, in some suburb of, of London. And 
that was not our style. You know, right away we were integrating in the British society. Of course, it was not that unlike our own society, but uh, we uh, and we had a wonderful posting there. But I think later on when we uh, his next assignment, overseas assignment after a few years in the U.S., uh, he got a tour, a seat. Sea tour. He was supposed to be on, on a ship for a year in the Persian Gulf, and it was an unaccompanied tour. It was uh, not uh, intended for the families to go. And we talked with the guy who had the job before him. And by then, we had two small children. The the youngest was just a few months old, and we we just determined that we uh, we didn't want to be apart for. A year, uh, and my husband was really a very creative guy. He older, thinking outside the box, and and he contacted the admiral on that ship and said, you know, my wife and my children uh, would like to come, and we understand that it'll be on our own penny, and we'll have to uh, find our own housing, and you know that we won't be uh, the, the navy's responsibility. But I need your permission to to do this, and uh, the admiral, to his credit, was all in, and so we um, flew out there, space available, which. You know, was that you could hitchhike on military aircraft. And it was just a big adventure. And I think for the two of us, we saw in each other that we loved that kind of, we loved, you know, the adventure of uh, experiencing something together. He was on a ship uh, the bulk of the time, but nevertheless, I was in the area. I ended up getting a great job uh, with a bank, an American bank in Bahrain. So uh, what we thought was going to be an experience that would uh, use up all of our savings. In fact, it was the opposite was true. I love that story. That's it's so bold. And like you said, thinking outside the box and, and you being willing to go with two small children to, you know, an unknown place so you guys can be closer together. It's really great. It really speaks to me because I felt the same way when Jason was in the army. I was like, I don't know if I want to just stay on a base. Can we try to meet somewhere else in the middle. And it wasn't as close as that, but I imagine you had plenty of long stretches where um, your husband wasn't available. He was working or on duty and you had to, you know, take care of those things yourself and, and including your children and your job now mm-hmm. in, in Bahrain. So. And, and so you were also not a, a U.S. citizen at the time or, or you were, when did, when did that happen? Right. So um, that still hadn't happened. And the funny thing was, you know, I was born a Swede. My parents were Swedish. And, but the point was that I really didn't spend much time in Sweden at all. I, I spent two years of living there when I grew up. Uh, we did go in the summertime, but, um, and of course we spoke Swedish at home, but my parents weren't, very vetted to Sweden either. So uh, I was sort of a global citizen, you could say. So it wasn't really until I moved to the States and started having those babies and really started putting down roots. And I was like, okay, this is really where my home is. And that's when I decided to become a citizen. I mean, I don't know if this is a a stupid question, but was that a hard decision? I mean, you're married to a, a naval officer. It seems logical. Yeah. The, the good thing was that he certainly didn't put any pressure on me, nor did anyone else. You know, it wasn't one of these things where you have to. I mean, obviously, Sweden was a friendly country, but it was a, really a decision I made for myself. As I said, it was interesting looking back. It was really when I started having the children and started putting down those really strong roots. And um, so in a way, it's been a, a, a really a very poignant and very special honor to be representing the United States as, a, as an adopted country. Absolutely. I think that's, I hear stories of, of, of people who've adopted United States and then they go on to serve and it's, it's a very powerful message there. Mm-hmm. And, and you're part mm-hmm. of that, the, those stories. 
um, you took the foreign service exam at some point, mm-hmm. and I'm curious as to who or sort of what influenced you to take that step. Yeah. My husband, after that assignment on the ship and everything, later he uh, was named as an attache. So he was a naval attache in India. And uh, when we lived in India, I got a job at the embassy working for USAID. And it was really my first uh, time working in an embassy. Uh, And I thought, wow, this is a very cool place. Uh, Of course, I worked for AID, which was a separate agency. But and I saw and my husband would work for the Navy. But and there are all these different agencies, obviously, represented in the embassy. You know, I've had my master's in international relations. And so in a way, it was the logical next step, but it was never one that I had thought, oh, this is where I'm going. But my interest was peaked at that time. And I did think about joining USAID as a foreign service officer, which is something you can do as well. But in the end, I decided to go for state. And so I took the exam uh, when we were posted to Finland, when my husband subsequently was naval attaché in Finland. And I took the foreign service, the written exam in the embassy there. And then, of course, later uh, went back to Washington to take the oral examination. I mean, I feel like every every time you you say something new, there's always another country, and there's always some. <laughs> you know, I mean, oh, I just happened to take the exam in Finland because that's where we happen to be. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and it, it's certainly an adventurous kind of life. It was, and I, I really want to pay some credit to my husband here because. For some reason, you know, he he had such a faith in what I would be able to do. So he really encouraged me to take this uh, foreign service exam. And part of the story is the exam was given once a year overseas. And when I knew of the date that this exam was going to be given, I, I thought I'll never be able to do it because I was about to have a baby, my fourth baby. And my son, his due date was like the day before the uh, exam was given or something. But as luck would have it, I ended up being able to take the forces nevertheless. In fact, I went into labor in the middle of the exam and I had to uh, drive to the hospital and um, I delivered the baby and then I was able to complete the written exam a few weeks later. And But again, my husband was very supportive. And when I got in, he was just like, over to you, like, it's your turn. And I'm going to be, you know, following from now on, which was not, I think, always easy because for a senior, uh, somebody who's had a, a senior position in the Navy and uh, leadership position to then suddenly be the dependent spouse. And I had been the dependent spouse. So I knew that that is not always a fun thing to, to do. Uh, but, you know, he did it and um, really encouraged me at every step of the way. This resonates with me um, mm. because I think this idea of the dependent spouse, it's its very hard to have two careers in this sort of, you know, mm-hmm. areas working at full throttle at the same time. And I think it's really wise to say, you know, you, you and your husband working together as a team, you know, he had his sort of career and got to a point where he wanted to hand that off. And it's, it's not perfect. You know, there's, there's mm. fits and starts probably along the way, but you to manage to make it work. And I actually know you're one of your children and, and I know that's affected her and her career choices and, and what she's done in her life. And I really admire someone like yourself who's been able to be that dependent spouse, but also have a career, raise children. Um, because it, oftentimes a lot of what I unfortunately saw at, at some of the 
post in my career where a lot of people with failed relationships and things that didn't work mm -hmm. out and, and including something that didn't work out for us in that, in that scope for a while. I mean, we got back together, which was good news, but you know, I saw a lot of people being lonely at the top in those yeah. positions. I think, you know, it's really important to think about. There are a lot of things in what you just said that, that I agree with. And I, when I mentored, you know, younger officers who were coming up and uh, were thinking about their priorities in their lives. And, you know, I'd often say, look, you know, this is not a race. You, you know, we, we have to balance the priorities that we have at that time. And there are times when your children perhaps need extra support or your, your spouse or whatever. And so there are times certainly in your career where you cannot give your career that can't be your top, top priority. So you have to balance all of that. And that's what life is about. Life is not about, you know, reaching some illustrious goal. It's this balance there. And the other thing just uh, to say on um, something that uh, I think I learned to prioritize when I grew up, and then I certainly saw it in my own family, that was, you know, the, the importance of the family unit. And as we went through a, as a family, each move, you know, was, it was always complicated. Like, I don't want to, it's not that it's all rosy and, and easy. The kids have to adjust and the older they get, the harder it is. And, but what I do think is looking back is that it was made us stronger as a family and the kids, uh, the fact that we had a number of children made it easier in a way because they could rely on each other and each move we had to then adjust to a new place, a new culture, a new everything. And we did that as a family, you know, and it strengthened us, I think, as a, the, the bonds uh, were, were strong. Looking back, I think the kids, you know, benefited, certainly, uh, but there were also costs, you know, and they're, they're so it's always uh, kind of a balance there. But um, I agree with you. I also have seen at embassies uh, at posts, you know, challenges. Again, the family, I think it's very important. And as a leader, I always said to folks, if it's possible, I want you to come to work every single day with a spring in your step. And my role as a leader was to figure out what is it? that makes it that you're not coming to work with a spring in your step. You know, is it something here at work that we're not doing, we're not providing you with the tools you need to succeed? Or is there an issue that you have that we need to know about at home? That was sort of the environment that I wanted to create uh, when, when I was responsible for folks. That's just so wise. I, I agree with you 100%. And this is not something I knew in my 20s that it's not a race. You know, you want to be successful and you're, you think that you're not going to get sort of that, you know, COS or that ambassador role if you don't do all the right things and check all the boxes and according to this timeline. But, you know, proof be told, like you achieved those things while also being the dependent spouse for maybe the, the first part of the career, raising a family and then finding out that, wow, you can still become a leader in all these other ways and, and get picked for these big positions, even if you haven't, you know, been in the workforce, mm -hmm. checking everything off. I mean, that's a good way to burn out. It's a good way to lose a relationship or, you know, like you said, lose time with kids when they're struggling and you can be working. And, mm -hmm. you know, something that I think we're seeing right now is forced family time as a unit when, you know, things are all changing around us. And it's, it's been really interesting to see mm -hmm. how it's affecting, you know, it's almost like a, an experiment of, mm -hmm. and we don't mm -hmm. know how long it's going to last, but at the same time, all these same sort of ways that you were able to get through 
your career is, is there are ways that people can do apply those to their lives today. And I think that's really great advice. Well, everyone wants both, right? You want a happy home life and you want a happy work life. Yeah. You know, it's like what we would say is everyone wants to be, be a green beret until it's time to do green beret stuff. Right. <laughs> and, and translate this to, to a life in, in the foreign service, in the state department, a lot of moves, a lot of these things. I mean, one of my big regrets when I went to Iraq and she went to uh, Abidjan. I didn't buy us the computer with the cameras on it because they were really expensive. And it was one of those things in, in hindsight, do everything you can, spend every dollar that you can to invest in the foundation of your life, which is your, your family unit and your loved ones and stay in touch and over communicate with, with them because they, they say you drift apart. Well, yeah, especially if you are apart and especially if you don't talk, and especially if, you know, all, you fill in the blank, all these basic things that we have. And, th and the second part is if, if you want to join the foreign service, take the exam. If you want to join the CIA, uh, apply. If you want to serve something greater than yourself, you have to start somewhere and, and don't be good, too good for any position. Everyone starts somewhere lower than where they want to be. Totally. I mean, that is so true. And, and uh, first of all, in the foreign service exam, everybody takes it several times like that's, that's very rare that people, you know, pass it on the first go. And what I always say to folks is once you're in, nobody's going to say, how many times did you have to take it? Like that's behind you and you're, you know, you're in. So I completely agree with you. I, and I always try to recruit folks because I, I think it's just the best career ever. And, um, I know those, you know, we have other foreign service roles that we've talked about, whether it's the agency or other, and that they're equally worthwhile and, and exciting. I happen to know about the foreign state department. So I'm going to be the advocate for that one. They completely agree with you on the whole communication bit. And there are so many little techniques. I have a, a colleague of mine who served in Iraq for a year and, you know, he had toddlers and they were uh, of course not with him and what his family did. And I thought it was so clever. They filled the, a jar with M&Ms and there were the number of M&Ms were the number of days until he came home. And then Every single day he FaceTimed with his kid and they were, you know, the, he was, the, the son would take one of the M&Ms and he would just physically see that jar, the, the, you know, empty. And it was just such a little thing, but, you know, really uh, just helped that kid get through the year and maybe dad too, you know. Hopefully they had a few extra M&Ms just in case there was delay or something. That's what I kept thinking about, right? Because, you know, all of a sudden we're down to no M&Ms and dad's still, you know, not there. Yeah, I think mom could adjust there a yeah. little bit. Perhaps. Yeah. But, yeah. Mom rules always win. Yeah. So let's go back to, to the beginning before we then, I, I do want to get into your role as ambassador and talk about how an embassy works. And I want, mm -hmm. I want to get mm -hmm. your thoughts on, you know, what makes a great foreign service officer and why people should join the state department. Before we get to that though, I want to talk about your first tour. Mm. You, that's where you didn't know what it was exactly until you're, you're wearing those shoes to work every day. And, and what mm. was that like for you? So I was extremely lucky. My first tour was uh, Prague, Czech Republic, which of course, and it was a really interesting time because um, the, the Berlin Wall had just fallen and, you know, communism was crumbling and et cetera. And actually the Czech Republic and Slovakia had just broken up. So the real thing that I think is interesting to talk about is I, I became a vice consul. My first job was as a vice consul 
meaning I did consular work. And that is actually something that I think is really important for folks to understand. And that is that as diplomats overseas, as foreign service officers, we all have to start in one of our first tours or sometimes both, we do consular work. And when people say consular work, they always think about the visas, you know, that we were stamping the visas. But the, the most important thing you do, and the reason we all have to do it is because you take care of Americans. We take care of Americans uh, overseas. And what does that mean, we take care of Americans? Well, it means if you are born, we're the one that issued the birth certificate. If you're in jail, we're the ones that come visit you and make sure you can get a lawyer and take care of you, et cetera. If you lose your passport, that's where you come. You come to the embassy and it's the vice consul that issues you a new passport. And we've just seen now the vice consuls around the world doing uh, a huge job to evacuate folks during this, um, you know, well over 50,000 Americans from all over the world have been brought back through the assistance of these vice consuls and consular sections around the world doing their job. And the reason I want to really highlighted is because other uh, diplomatic services, for them, this consular piece is completely separate. It's not the normal diplomats who do it. Whereas for us, it's considered a uh, really our most important duty. And we all need to have done it. And that's why we do it early on. Some of us stay with that cone, or I think now they don't call it cones anymore. But when I came in, we had these cones. We're not going to edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was a political officer, so I, I, my consular was not my specialty, but I did it uh, both in uh, for two years in the Czech Republic, and then I did it for um, half of my tour in Denmark. Um, So back to the Czech Republic, consular work, really important. I had to go visit jails. We had a number of Americans in jail in Czech Republic. And, you know, I'd never been to a jail before. So, you know, that was interesting. Um, And of course, we had deaths, we had people robbed, we had a young woman was raped on her very first day, she came to the Czech Republic to teach English. And she was out in some town. And we knew nothing about it until we got a call from her mother uh, saying that this young woman had called in desperation from a phone booth in this town. And we were able to find her, bring her back to Prague and get her home. So this was the kind of uh, work that, that, you know, we had to do. And so I always remember that later when, you know, I didn't do any more consular work later on in my career. And I'd always say to my young consular officers, uh, look it, you are you're also ambassadors for America. You know, we, it may only be one person in the embassy who gets that title from the president, but you all are uh, as well. And you may, the the foreigner that comes to the window, you may be the only American that person's ever going to meet, especially if they apply for a visa and they don't get the visa. So the re the way you treat that person, if you let that person walk away from the window, perhaps not having achieved the visa, but having felt that they've were treated with dignity, that'll make a difference. You know, not just for, they'll tell their families and their friends, this is what happened to me in the consular section. And of course, conversely, if you treat them badly, that too will be out there. So really important work, uh, consular work. And and I, I did enjoy it. It was, it was really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I spent some time in our consular section um, huh. just because I was interested in it. And, and obviously my friends that were um, in the Foreign Service and State Department were had a tour down there and they just learned so much about the culture so quickly. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you're, they're in the trenches and they're, they're really getting a firsthand education as to, you know, what's going on in the country 
um, be it from an American who's in need. And you're really seeing our citizens at a time of with a real vulnerability sometimes where they need help. And this is, oh, yeah. this is, oh, yeah. this is their home. This is their American soil. And we, you're right. It's, it's something that is a rite of passage for a foreign service officer. And I love that it's, it's a part of everybody's beginning. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. a really, it's a common bond for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I also love the tie in. If you start to think about hearts and minds, because I mean, part of what we're here, you've got an army guy, an agency gal, and you've got a, a state department career mm-hmm. diplomat, mm-hmm. right? And collectively, you know, we still represent those organizations in just, I mean, that's your title and, and it's just how you go about your, your life. You are, we are all ambassadors for those organizations that are near and dear to our hearts. And yet, you know, the idea of hearts and minds, it does unite all of us. In, in our service, it's one of those things where sometimes it's a softer approach and, and it also works. But, you know, when, when you get into, you know, how did we kind of coin and counterinsurgency in, in warfare, it was so much of it was based around hearts and minds. And, and the idea that I never thought about the consular officers as ambassadors until you just bring it up right now. But of course that makes perfect sense. I mean, their job is no matter what to win hearts and minds. I mean, what is America if people don't dream of coming here? Well, totally. And, and, you know, I'd like to just say here that one of the things that I encountered so much uh, was this misperception of America and how the America that is shown own uh, in the movies and on television programs and, and, and also in the headlines, the violence and the everything, you know, how that is just so not what our country is about. And so everything we could do to just change that perception. And one of the ways I always wanted to do it, I did it myself, but I also encouraged all my colleagues to do it was just to invite people into your home. And I said, no matter how modestly, you know, we live, we still live like even in an apartment, you can host somebody at home. And I, I did that for my very first tour. And the gesture of bringing somebody into your home for a meal, I think means a lot in many, many cultures. And it did a lot to just change perceptions. And then, you know, you have a completely different relationship with that person. First of all, you may understand the country and the culture and the politics much, much better, but it is also a a contact for you that you can later call and uh, discuss things with. And so I, I, it was something I always encouraged and I always did and I thought just really important to do. I I agree. The, you just reminded me of, you know, sort of the layers of the embassy, you know, you have your, the different Mm -hmm. agencies and they're forced to work together. And, um, Mm-hmm. That, that's really important. And then you also have F- FSNs, you know, the Foreign Service Nationals who are, you know, they're the locals who are employees at the embassy. And you have to have a very trusting relationship of them because they are really, you're, you know, they're giving you a lot of insight and access to their country as well. And, and you know, and then externally, how are you relating to the culture, everyone else in, in that country, you know, Americans and then you know, the, the citizens of, of that nation. And it's, you see an embassy at its best when all of those different layers are working well together. Absolutely. And, and, uh, I- Peace uh, throughout the embassy. It's the institutional knowledge. 
It's the people that very often have worked there for 10, 20, 20 30 years, sometimes uh, at a real cost to themselves. Sometimes it's not easy uh, in countries such as, you know, that some of the countries I served in, some of uh, the locals were under pressure by local security forces and others. But you're absolutely the whole thing and, and it needs to work together. And of course, the different agencies, critically important that the ambassador lay out a vision of where we want to go. And then, you know, you have these country team meetings and where all the agencies are represented. And as a leader, you know, laying out that vision and then communicating it clearly and then, you know, delegating, getting out of the way and making sure everybody is working towards that goal. Though, no, these are all important uh, steps to take. So as a leader, when you would roll in to a new country, right, assume you're rolling in hot, right? And you say, okay, so I'm here and I'm new. And there's so much institutional knowledge around you. And in some places, the, the U.S. embassy is huge. In some places, it's a little smaller. It's, it's always different, though, to some degree. Yeah. What were your sort of steps to, to normalize your life a little bit and, and still start to, to make your, your mark, to influence the direction that you wanted our role to go there. Yeah. So, well, certainly, I mean, all of this is quite different when you're the ambassador, because of course, then you have to take much more of a leadership role. And so let me talk about that first. Certainly when you're preparing to become an ambassador, it's a quite a lengthy process because first you go through, you know, as, as you're being considered by the secretary of state, you know, you go through vetting there and then, you know, go through vetting at the white house and then you're confirmed by the Senate and all of that takes you know, months. And while that's all going on, you are preparing, you know, you're reading everything you can lay your hands on. You're communicating with folks, experts here in Washington, whether they're uh, government or non-governmental experts. And so you're, you know, you're just immersing yourself. Of course, a lot of it often is also language training. You are going through, you know, uh, sort of a, a educational institution where uh, we do uh, training of languages and, and other things. And, and so you, while you're doing that, you're also learning about the culture and this and that. The uh, one aspect before you get to post, if you're in a leadership position, is also, you know, working with your press team. What is the rollout that you want when you get to post? How are you, what are the first steps you're going to take? I remember just uh, somebody who, uh, when I was consul general in Casablanca, and we had an ambassador in the capital, Rabat, and when he came, one of his first things that he did when he came to Casablanca, which was his second day there, was to go to the big mosque, the biggest mosque in the country, signaling, you know, respect for the religion. And so you just have to think about all that. You have to think about, you know, what are the first things I'm going to do? Because as the American ambassador in a country, everybody will pay attention, you know. And so you, you don't want to right away do something and later say, well, you know, I didn't mean to quite do that. No, you, <laughs> you want to really think about it ahead of time. Uh, and then, of course, once you get to post, uh, one of the important things is, to, you know, to get to know all the different sections and you want to have a town hall probably right away to talk to your entire team. And then you are also still in listening mode. You know, while you may have your little roadmap, you're always thinking about how am I going to adjust it? Uh, one of the really useful things that happened to me before I went to Tajikistan was I spoke to a woman uh, who had been ambassador three times. And I had seen that she was very savvy with her social media thing and everything. So I had coffee with her. She was very generous with her time. And she 
told me a number of things that were helpful. And one of them actually goes back to, we talked about the local uh, employees and she said, you, you know, you need to set up regular meetings with your uh, maybe once every two months or something with the folks in your public affairs section, the local staff. And what you need from them is honest critique on what you did in the last two months, and then also help you plan for the, for the future. I did that when I was in Tajikistan. It was extremely helpful because people would say to me, look, you're, uh, you're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. You're not smiling enough or you're, you know, you're carrying a purse when you're clipping, cutting the ribbon, you know, ditch the purse. And it was just like very practical information and also culturally what might be acceptable and what, what, what was not so welcome. So I think you have to be, you, you don't know it all. You don't come in there thinking, well, you know, I know everything. No, you're, you're learning the whole time. So what was the first thing that you did when you got there? Uh, well, to Tajikistan, I landed in the middle of the night. Most of the countries that I've served in, you land in the middle of the night. <laughs> Harder to shoot the plane down that way? <laughs> it's just the airlines. Just, I don't yeah. know. In any event, so I went home and, and went to sleep. But the next morning, I mean, one of the first things I did was have my uh, personal uh, security team come and have tea with me. Uh, so I met them all and I, you know, had a dialogue with them uh, explaining how I respected the work they did. And many of them, several of them had never been inside the residence. So that was a nice thing. And then I had all the Marines over for breakfast. So I met all the Marines, talked to them, got their insights and what they thought I should know. So that was very fun. Yeah. So those were some of the first steps I took. In, in your, your press rollout. Yeah. I did have a press conference early on. I started going out and exploring the country, different cultural aspects. And, you know, as I was learning the language, like giving little snippets in the language. But one of the interesting things about uh, Tajikistan was that, of course, it had been part of the Soviet Union. So Russian had been a, the, the sort of the prevalent language, but they had their own language, which is uh, Tajiki, which is closely affiliated with Dari, which is what they speak in Afghanistan and also with Farsi, what they speak in Iran. And um, I felt very strongly, while I had some Russian, I felt very strongly that as the country was really trying to grow their own language again, as an American ambassador, I should not be out there uh, using Russian, you know, so I made a point of studying um, Tajiki and, uh, uh, and while I, I certainly could not have a professional conversation in the language, I was able to make, you know, little statements and, and put that out on social media. And, and that goes a long way, right? Just learning some of the, the local phrases or, cust, you know, customary phrases that people say, it, it goes a long way because people say, wow, she's, she's actually trying to understand my culture. And, um, you know, I also think it's a really great point. I, I did the same thing on a smaller scale with my, my guards in Africa. I invited them in my home to meet them and, and they told me they had never had that happen before sort of thing, but I wanted to know them. And, you know, part of that is, is self-serving because I also wanted them to know me and I wanted to yeah. have a, a trust, a trusting relationship. And so I think that's a wise first move to know, you know, your personal security staff and the, the Marine security guards. I imagine that this was a big change of life for you to have a personal security team and to have that affect your movement. How did you uh, get used to that? 
Yeah, it took some getting used to. That's true, because I couldn't just uh, walk out my gate and take a walk. You know, and I'm, I'm somebody who loves the outdoors. And the, the thought of that, you know, it was just um, that, that I always had to schedule. Every move had to be scheduled and took some some getting used to. And I also, you know, wanted to on weekends, I always thought about uh, every movement you you know, involved people because they would have to go in advance, check out wherever I wanted to go ahead of time. And then I just thought of these uh, poor people. I just felt like they wanted, needed their family time as well. And, you know, and then I realized I can't just be cooped up here all weekend long. It's, that's not good either. So, you know, we found a a happy compromise, but it was something in the beginning that I felt took some getting used to, that's for sure. But as I said, I did respect their work. I knew they were doing it because it was necessary. And so I, uh, and it is so prevalent now pretty much everywhere. But for me, and I think it was also the fact that I was the first tour where I was ever by myself. You know, I had become, I had lost my husband a few years prior. And so it was the first time that I went to a post without children and without a spouse. So it just made it uh, something where I had to really actively Think about what do you do to to relax so that you can put in your best work. And so hiking became really uh, helpful. And then, you know, I played tennis, I did yoga, um, and I just tried to uh, do these things that were also healthy for my body. So you're also in a dangerous part of the world, right? Mm-hmm. It might look like Switzerland in parts, but you're not mm-hmm. in Switzerland <laughs> for, for this, this posting, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. you, there's an 800 mile border shared with Afghanistan. You're on the border with Western China as well. It's a foreign culture. And I I read this quote and I really liked it. And it was about your take on how to do the job, basically. And you said, you have to be diplomatic. That's part of the game. I think a lot of our tough conversations are in private and we're not out there broadcasting that. It's not about us feeling good about ourselves. It's about trying to get results. And how do you best get results? There are ways that we can do things with the Tajiks that they also want. Sometimes that gives us an an avenue to have conversations in private about some of the things we think they need to improve. And so in the midst of all of this, you know, your first unaccompanied post, right? You're a first time ambassador. You're in a a dangerous part of the world, right? It's not before this, I kind of knew where, where the country was, but not entirely. I mean, I I probably would have failed the, the capital test as well, you know, and, and here you are and you're still committed to our way of life through, through your role as an ambassador representing our, our country. And you have this kind of nuanced approach, which I think is just the heart of diplomacy, right? So if you could just expand a little bit more on how you would do that. Well, that's really how I felt when I was there. And a lot of times uh, folks look to the United States to give a statement, you know, issue a statement on something that's happened. And there are times, you know, if there's something we disagree with that's happened in the country. And certainly there are many times when that is necessary and we do it. But from my perspective, uh, I felt that sometimes having the more quiet dialogue got us to a place where we wanted to go and without, you know, naming and shaming. Uh, and so when we talked about one of the first things I did, of course, was to go and see the foreign minister. And I developed a very good relationship with the foreign minister in, in Tajikistan and uh, similarly in Morocco when I was there with the officials there. And I, I found that, you know, showing respect, but of course, you, we, we, we know what we stand for. We make that clear. 
And then we try to find the best way forward. One of the things that we worked on in many, many countries was trying to combat corruption, for instance. And it was interesting because very often foreign governments want more American investment. You know, they're always saying to us, can't you bring in more foreign American firms to invest in our countries? Because they rightly know that this will help prosperity and it'll help them grow. And so... I would explain to them, look, companies have can invest wherever they want in the whole world, and they will look at the regulations that are in place in your country and say, is this a place that is transparent, where we can get a fair process if we have a dispute? And so if you come at it from that angle saying, you know, here's something you want, you want more investment, and what is it that the investors investors are looking at? And so you explain why you know a reform is is going to be in their interest. And so having those kinds of dialogues, I think, would could be very useful. In the agency training, they talked about something called PT buff, which is put the benefits up front, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what you would do by de- saying going about it that way, mm-hmm. and and doing so in the sort of private conversations. It allows someone to keep their dignity the, the same way as the visa applicant that who's denied. You want them walking away, still having their dignity, and maybe they'll try again and they're not going to, you know, hate on America because of this. But the same thing goes at the top. And, and the way you go about doing it, I think, is a, is is a nuanced approach, but it's also really effective. And I'm I'm glad people like you are out there in those positions making those sort of decisions. I mean, if you give someone a reason to have revenge against you, they will, that will <laughs> encompass everything that they think about and mm-hmm. you know, naming and shaming, as you said, I haven't heard it called like that. That's, that's about right. It's, it's popular at, at times, but it gives people a reason to dislike you. Yeah. And, and that's exactly the opposite of what you're trying to do. Yeah. It's a balance. You know, you have to think about uh, about it because there. it's also true that if the United States is makes a statement on, let's say, a human rights abuse or something, you know, that is also important. There are times when it's very important to do that because there are NGOs that are looking very carefully and us making a statement like that provides them cover and provides them protection. So, you know, you have to balance it. You have, when you're out of post, you work very closely with Washington and you have a lot of, uh, you know, your view will carry a lot of weight because you're on the ground. So you have that dialogue and you figure out what is our best way forward. But certainly um, establishing good rapports, uh, you know, across the board with uh, civil society and private sector, you know, many countries, we have the uh, American Chambers of Commerce, which uh, bring together representatives of businesses, American businesses in those countries, that can be extremely useful. I served in Kazakhstan where um, the, the the AmCham was so good at identifying, you know, very specific things that they needed the government to do and quietly had the dialogue with the government with our facilitation. And in fact, we were able to go in that direction. So or the government took the steps that, that were needed. So uh, it, it can have really good results. So let's get even a little more specific. I mean, what were your priorities as ambassador? Well, you know, certainly the relationship between our two countries we we was very important, and there were a number of things that we worked closely on. I personally 
was a big proponent of education and of development for girls and women. And, you know, Tajikistan is, is a country that unfortunately has had a civil war after its independence. And um, that civil war really has repercussions to this day where it uh, needs a lot of um, development. And uh, there are villages, I would go out to the villages to try to talk to uh, girls and try to, to encourage them to stay in schools and the family to let them stay in schools. We had a, a good AID uh, program there, which um, helped with economic development in the country. So that, of course, was another priority. And so w- let's talk about the role of the ambassador inside the embassy, because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't understand this at all until I got to spend a little time in the embassy with, as, as M's, what was I, dependent, right? We had sort of mm-hmm. traded roles. It didn't, didn't work out great, uh, that go around, but I got a lot of time inside the embassy and, and just met our ambassador and so got a little familiar with it. But I mean, the idea that the ambassador basically has to approve everything. Can, can you talk to us about that? I mean, just as a way to elevate how important this role is. Well, so you, you know, you are the person appointed by the president to represent the United States in that country. So that is really a huge responsibility. So at the end of the day, you know, the buck stops with you. And so that's why, you know, I'm a huge believer in in delegating, as I said earlier, and I'll get out of the way. But at the same time, you know, I need to know everything that goes on, you know, that anything that can go wrong, I need to know about. And I made very clear to my people, no surprises. And no, no bad, bad news doesn't get better with time. So I need to know immediately what's happened and we can find a way forward. And I felt that most things have happened before somewhere so that, you know, we can figure out how to deal with it, but uh, I need to know about it. So a lot of my work there was just making sure everyone's same page, moving in the same direction and that everyone one could cross pollinate. You know, we, we tend to get very stovepipe, but it's very important that we cross pollinate and work in the same. Uh, and, and again, something we referred to earlier, you know, somebody on the on the consular line may pick up stuff that in the political section, economic section and the agency, you know, in the station that they may not have heard. These are all pieces of a puzzle that we're trying to put together because, you know, as an embassy, the the big picture, what we're trying to do is, of course, report back to Washington what is going on in this country, especially related to something that is of a national interest to the United States. And what we can do is not just give the facts, but we can give an analysis of why this matters, what it means, and what's likely to happen because we're on the ground. And at the same time, what we're also trying to do is explain what's happening in Washington, you know, uh, messages from Washington, convey them to the, to the country. And as we talked about trying to get, bring about reforms in the areas that we want or changes, that w- whatever it is we want. So all these different agencies that are represented, you know, in some, um, in some embassies, you may have, uh, you know, 50 different agencies represented. We didn't have as many in Tajikistan because it was a smaller embassy, but you've got a lot of different agencies uh, that have sent out folks. And so you need to make sure that everyone really is working together. And that is an ongoing effort. It's not something you snap a finger and, and every, everything is fine. You know, it is something that you just have to keep working on. So what were the sort of rivalries that you would see? I mean, you know, you've got mm. Department of State, you've got the CIA, you've got military all of those agencies are, are active. 
I mean, and, and their roles matter hugely. And so how would you sort of separate or approve stuff or disapprove stuff? What was your thinking on, on how to make the ship run well? Well, I think that there certainly are rivalries. And, you know, I remember even within the military because at a, you know, the military presence, there are two parts to it. One is the attache side, which is, you know, intelligence liaison and, and intelligence co uh, collection. And then on the other side, you have the military cooperation side, which essentially is uh, the one that can provide loans or uh, military support. Um, and so those two uh, were, there were times I've been, I was at one post where we had to bring the two folks that were representing those two uh, parts of that office in every single week, we had to sit them down. We had a regular meeting once a week, sit them down and go through what was going on because they were just so antagonistic. And we just had to, from the top then, you have to mandate cooperation. And, you know, again, I think that uh, I, I felt strongly that since I had the responsibility, I had to be involved. I don't believe in micromanaging. I don't want to say, you know, it was a micromanaging situation, but it was one where the big picture, the general direction and cross-pollination and no surprises. So what would you say was a big win? I mean, what were you really proud of when you were there? You talked about going to the villages and, and getting yeah. girls through education. I mean, we all know that's the future, stuff like that. Is it, what, what else comes to mind? Well, I think that that country really began to trust in its friendship with the United States, realized that we really were, were a friend that they could trust for their uh, for, for providing them support, the kind of support they could use. So I think we, we moved the ball quite significantly on that, uh, on that front. And I think that was important. And so let's take that up a notch and say, I mean, what, why do we need to be there? I mean, what is the role in, in the short term as it relates to, to the long term in, in that part of the world? Because, I mean, I, my, my team went to a country most people probably couldn't find on a map, either Mauritania and Western Africa, right? I mean, and what did we do? We provided logistical support and training to, to their army there. And it's not because you're looking for a short-term win per se, that it's part of a longer-term trust that your relationship that you're trying to build. And that that's, I, I really bought into that, you know, the diplomacy side of what I did in the army. And as we look at where, where you were that part of the world, I mean, how do we start to wield some influence in that part of the world? Well, you know, I think we do wield some influence because I think that at the end of the day, these countries, and we saw it also in Kazakhstan, these countries are increasingly realizing that they were so focused on Russia and they are realizing that that is not to their benefit. So they are broadening that and they are looking to us. They're looking to the Europeans uh, and others. But just to go to Tajikistan for a minute, a lot of it also has to do with Afghanistan. You know, we, the, the whole idea was, you know, to try to embed Afghanistan, facilitate Afghanistan's success, let's put it that way. And, you know, something I had worked on from the, from the southern border when I was in India also, uh, trying to think about what can we do to embed Afghanistan in, more, in a more prosperous region and uh, facilitate trade, whether it's, um, you know, ele electrical hydropower, 
being exported from places like Tajikistan down through Afghanistan, down to the uh, energy-hungry uh, India and Pakistan. So that's the, the one piece of it. So we talked about Russia, we talked about um, Afghanistan. The other thing is China. You know, China is increasingly looking at, at, at this part of the world and uh, starting to wield, wield, uh, wield a lot of influence there. And so our presence, I think, again, provides a counterbalance to that and is something that the government relies on. Tajikistan is a country where um, they have a lot of uh, precious um, metals and mines of various sorts. And uh, the Chinese were starting to, to invest in those in a big way. What you were saying about, you know, China taking interest in sometimes the infrastructure in these in these countries, I, I saw it a lot in Africa. And I think what you the key word that you mentioned was counterbalance and how America needs to find uh, a way to offer um, something to these countries, it basically is saying to to China, like, hey, we know you're here. We want to come in here and build schools and provide training and, you know, bring an investment to these countries, something that is theirs, not just the idea of I'm going to come in and take all the resources out and bring my our people in. Like I, I used to, China notoriously brings in a lot of their workers and builds their own infrastructure. And they're not using the local population. They're not employing them. You know, it's just, it's really this sort of come in and exploit um, in a lot of cases. And then they build a big monument or something like that. But, you know, I, I really think the American way, um, I've seen it work very positively in the places where we are. And, and you know, like you said, you focused on schools, you know, did you did you see a change there um, with people and valuing that sort of educational opportunities, especially for for women or people who were disenfranchised from those? Well, you know, I think it's 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 tough. Uh, and I wish I could say that I saw, a real, you know, an easy change. I don't think it, that stuff is, is takes time. And I think a lot of the effort that uh, we were out there just making sure that kids had access to English learning, for instance, uh, that they could learn English. And then that, you know, with that, you then would see they were able to apply for various uh, scholarships, various programs that we had. And one of the things we haven't talked about is uh, really big program where we bring foreigners to the United States. Sometimes it's just for a brief time, a program, but sometimes it's for a year in high school, you know, coming back and spending a year. And I did meet in all the countries I served. I, I met folks who had benefited from that. And it was for them a life altering experience. Uh, and those are contacts and connections for the United States. And it's an alumni network that we have around the world, extremely valuable. Very often, you know, they uh, they may be in leadership positions now. They were uh, in high school then, and now they are a vice minister, or they, you know, run a huge company or whatever. And they'll come to your home. I had a, a Thanksgiving event when I was in Tajikistan, and I decided to invite folks who had been in America for Thanksgiving so that they knew what that was all about. And it was the best evening ever because everyone uh, told their story of what they had experienced. And um, it was just something then they were really, we all became very close friends. You have parliamentarians who come to the U.S. to uh, interact here with uh, local authorities and learn about how we do things here. All of these programs, it's soft, you know, it's, it's, but it's, I think very impactful and um, something that I just hope we can continue. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, I've 
maintain sort of my connections to the Foreign Service even um, mm-hmm. after I separated. And I'm on a lot of email lists for opportunities for Americans to do similar sort of exchanges through the embassy or through the State mm-hmm. Department. And there's mm-hmm. there's just a lot of opportunity out there that I I, I didn't know about when I was, uh, you know, in high school or even in college. And I think I tell people a lot like, hey, did you know this this opportunity to go, you know, learn a new language and experience a new culture with a lot of other smart and interesting people is are out yeah. there. And so I, I think there's on both ends, there's a lot of, of interesting opportunities. So in your career, you know, you career diplomat, seen mm-hmm. lots of different places, had lots mm-hmm. of different roles, have a, a great perspective on what makes someone successful. To, to join the Foreign Service, the State Department in those kinds of roles. You know, I hear a lot of leading, not just by telling, but by just the way that you carry yourself, you know, bringing people in, like true diplomacy, mm-hmm. you know, because part of what we would love to see is more Americans raise their hand and say, send me. And part of the challenge that I went through, you know, I graduated college right after 9-11 and I knew I wanted to join the military, but didn't know exactly what that meant, is helping people find what their calling is. And so as, as someone's out listening to this now, whether they're going to join the military and they have a greater respect for the State Department or they're out there and they say, hey, that sounds like a great life, a great way to serve. What makes a great officer in the State Department? Well, you know, I, I think that there's so many different, I've seen so many different great officers and they are genuine in their own way. But I think certainly you have to be open. You have to be interested in the, the, the outside world and uh, flexible, willing to, um, to move outside your own comfort zone and find, actually find that to be a stimulating and, and uh, an opportunity for growth. So I think those are really basic things. Then, I mean, you have to, there's a thing in the foreign service and we talk about the uh, corridor of reputation. And so you have to treat people decently and you have to treat people decently from the beginning, you know, because people don't forget. And as you move up and you're competing for positions, you know, it's not just your bosses who weigh in, you know, whoever is looking at you, they will look out at uh, your peers and people who work for you. And so, you know, you have to be a decent human being. (laughs) And so I think, you know, those are some of the characteristics that, uh, that we look for, but I'll just say uh, in the foreign service, when I, when I joined and, and thankfully we haven't delved into the years too much, but you know, the truth is that I was north of 35 when I joined. So I was not a spring chicken. Uh, And I was not the oldest in our entry class. And we had folks who were um, a number of people from the military who decided to move over to the state. We had a number of lawyers. One of my best friends had been a divorce attorney for 10 years. And he told us that he ended up getting divorced himself. And then he said, I can't do this anymore. I have to change. And he, to this day, is in the Foreign Service. So, you know, we had people coming from very different backgrounds. A lot of folks from Peace Corps, of course. So just to to give you a little bit of the picture there. What I hear is there's diversity in there. It's not pigeonholed, but you need to obviously want to serve and you need to be curious and interested in, in other cultures. And what I hear you telling your story is a a desire to actually get out on the front lines in these countries and go do real, real diplomacy, you know, get out and meet the people is what I mean when I say real diplomacy. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think if, if you're going to go through this, you might 
This is what get out there and really do it, right? Why sit on your in your little compound or your uh, base and pretend like you're back home? That's not why we've done this. So absolutely get out as much as you can. And and I, I also think that you do think about the greater purpose. And uh, my husband used to say, you know, I couldn't get excited about selling widgets. That wouldn't be the thing for me. And I think that's true for me too. Like, so you, you do sacrifice, but, but, you know, at the same time, you just are so, you feel like I'm so blessed. I'm out here actually uh, representing my, my beloved country. And, you know, what could be more wonderful, really? So I know you're big on mentorship. I, Got that from conversations prior to this, and it's clear in, in this how big you are on it. What's the advice that you would have for those who are interested in serving their country today? Well, I would highly recommend a career in the Foreign Service. I will say there are very few days that I regretted that career choice. There was not, not a dull day. I mean, and if you have a, a bad supervisor, and I once had a supervisor that I didn't love to death, then you, you just feel, well, it can't be that long because either that person's going to get transferred, you're going to get transferred because our tours are short. <laughs> so you know that you, you're not going to be in a, in that situation forever, but I could, could think of more, no more interesting career, no more broadening career. So I would just say, um, and don't be intimidated by the process. I know that can be, folks can feel like it's a lengthy process. I always say to folks, you know, the best thing to do is to uh, look into the foreign service career while you have another job or while you're at school or something. No, go into it knowing that it's a lengthy process and, you know, give it your best. And then, you know, if you don't pass the first time and nobody does, do it again and, you know, you'll get there. That's great advice. And I think, you know, if I could do it over again, I, I would, I, I really enjoyed my career um, in the agency and I got to meet a lot of great people and do a lot of great things. But I, something that always is in the back of my mind is that I wish I had done Peace Corps and I, and I sometimes wish that I could, you know, I talk to Jason sometimes. I'm like, maybe, maybe when our kids are a little older, we could, maybe we could do this again. And, and that's really awesome to hear from you that like, you know, in your mid thirties, you went into this career again. I mean, I think a lot of us have this itch to get out and continue to serve and have adventures. And that doesn't, you don't have to do it if it's not good for you right now, but you can scratch that itch later. And I think about this a lot. And I, and I think at one point this, we will be living in some place and hopefully our kids will, you know, travel there and maybe fall in love with someone and have a, another adventure like, like you did with your husband. Well, then, then I've succeeded today. I was hoping <laughs> I'd at least recruit one person. So. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Well, Madam Ambassador, thank you so much for spending some time with us today from your, your quarantine life in the greater DC area. We, we really appreciate your, your time and your insight and. You've made my wife want to go join the State Department. Right? Did you hear that? You know, and you said you weren't the oldest one, right, at 35. So it's like, I guess, like, you know. There's a chance. <laughs> so I think it's it's a job well done. And and the inspiration of service is something that we're, we're really passionate about here. And we respect you and your career and just the way that you carry yourself. So thank you again. Thank you all. Take care. So I'm, I'm ready, honey. Can we, are you ready to go have another adventure in the embassy with me? I am always ready for an adventure with you, sweetie. I think we're, <laughs> we're leading that life now. We yeah. are, but I, I do have this itch. I have to tell you, like I've talked about this before that, you know, when our kids are done with high school and college, I, I really want to live abroad again and, and 
I want to serve again on the kind of the front lines there. Yeah. The, the, the ambassador has left the, the digital garage space of, uh, glorious professionals headquarters. So it's just us doing a little recap. Apparently we, and I say, we have been, uh, motivated to potentially join the state department at some point in the, the slightly distant future. We're looking forward to <laughs> that adventure. It was great having the, the ambassador on. Just from a female standpoint, it's so inspiring for me to see someone who, and, and it, this is not to gloss over it, put in, put in the work and be patient and show what it's like to, to lead and also have these career opportunities wait for her as she took care of her family and supported her husband and did all these things that I think, you know, I, I aspire to, right. And finding this balance and doing so successfully and still being able to, to reach the pinnacle of her career as an ambassador. You know, one of the hardest things is to know that tomorrow isn't promised, but to plan for a, a long, rich life. And, and how do you, how do you do that? And sometimes you have to be patient. Sometimes you have to throw your, throw your hat into the ring a little bit later than everybody else in life. You know, sometimes the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. A lot of times life gets in the way and, and there's a lot of life getting in the way these days and, and that's okay. You know, we're, we're all biding our time just a little bit. And I think there's a lot of reflection going on. Where do we want to be? What do we want to do? How do we want to lead our lives? And I take a lot of inspiration from someone who's seen a full life and experienced a lot. And you just, she just doesn't have regrets. You know, I mean, there was, there was constant service throughout her career. The things that she's glossing over the parts about, oh, well, it wasn't always all roses every time we would move somewhere. I mean, those are hard. Those are hard things to do. And, and yet there's this sense of fulfillment that I got from, from speaking with her that her service to others for a career, and at times it was service to her kids, at times it was supporting her husband, and then her husband supported her in, in the job category. And that's, that's really inspirational. So tomorrow's not promised, but plant seeds all the while. It's, it's rewarding. And that's the only way that the, that the tree grows. Yeah. It's also an example of really good teamwork. And she demonstrates that in her own personal life, you know, switching off with her husband, inspiring her children who I know are that serve their country or have served their country and then also bringing that to that same mindfulness to her professional career where she is patient. She comes into a country. I love her first steps. She listens. She wants to meet people who are going to be protecting her and find out what do they think about the situation and work out, you know, something that she feels comfortable with in terms of routine to take care of herself, you know, the hiking, the running, the yoga, the tennis. I mean, these are ways that she stayed grounded while she, I mean, she could have just worked, a, you know, a hundred and a hundred hour weeks, you know, oh, but she also carved out space so she could be at her best. And in doing though, so she was also considerate of the people around her. So, you know, it, it takes someone who is very mature and, and balanced to do these sort of things, because like she said, I mean, this speaks to me, like so much of what I am driven to and drawn. And I think a lot of people is a race. <laughs> Let's just get there fast. I mean, you and I say, America. 
you and I said this, uh, you know, like, let's just get to the end and then we'll work on a relationship. You know, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's, there's got to be some sort of, Hey, we got to stop and pull up and assess and then go on. And, And I think this applies to the situation where we're in today. It's, it's not a race. And it's not a who's going to be better at the end of this kind of competition. This is a very introspective or if you have a family, uh, a turn and, and a time to really examine things in your in your life and, and check in with your loved ones. On the on the work front, before we say goodbye to you all, what I found interesting was she, she said she didn't ever want to be a micromanager. And I, I really can really relate to that. She also said. Sometimes I had to schedule lots of communication, AKA meetings with two various entities. And, you know, I'm overall in charge and I, I have to facilitate this and they have to talk and I have to know what's going on. And look, you don't always get to choose which burdens of leadership you have. So if you're, if you're out there and you're in that, that role, it's an opportunity. You're in charge very much. And so you have to do the things that you have to do. And in, in her case, what she's describing is, is a really good top level plan. Get two people, sit them down and make sure that there is communication. And so maybe I'm just sort of verbalizing something so that I remember to remember that, but I bet there's a lot of people out there just listening to her style. You can tell, you know, she, she believes in delegation and, and yet sometimes that, that calls for, for other stuff. So thank you for listening to Glorious Professionals. If you have enjoyed this, If you find this stuff interesting and entertaining and invaluable, please tell your friends about it. And we appreciate your, your time and your listening to the podcast today. Thanks.